Well, today, as I said, we're going to begin a journey through the Old Testament, or what the Jews call the Scriptures. Christians, we call this the Old Testament. To the Jews, it's their Bible. The word Bible comes from Biblion, which just means books. So the Jews, the 39 books of the Old Testament, are their Bible. You may have heard this phrase, the Torah, which speaks of the Old Testament, or maybe the Pentateuch. Pene meaning five, and Tuk means Tuk. No, Tuk means scroll, the five books of Moses. In the New Testament, you'll read things like the law and the prophets. The law, the first five books, and then the prophetic books, which really is the sum of the Old Testament. The bottom line is, for the next 35 weeks or so, we're going to take this journey through the Old Testament. Now, on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, I've taught the entire Old Testament, and you can kind of research and find those messages. This is more of a flyover. Some weeks we'll look at a chapter, sometimes a verse, sometimes entire books. What it means is it's a great chance for you to do your own learning, your own heavy lifting. We have great resources in the shelf, and we've created a landing page for you on the web where you can look at resources like videos and suggested readings so that you might learn and grow with us. Today we start our journey with one simple step, the book of Genesis. The opening words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That single sentence has changed the world more than any other sentence, document, war, or an invention. Thomas Cahill in his book, The Gift of the Jews, writes this brilliant subtitle, how a tribe of desert nomads changed the way everyone thinks and feels. They influenced the world. How did they do it? Not through war or submission or domination, but through the scriptures. Now here in the West, we're the product of the scriptures. The lifestyle we live in the West came to us through these ideas. It's embedded in our culture through music and literature. We see it in movies, it's on walls, it's in government buildings. And one of the problems, it's become so familiar to us. But these seven Hebrew words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To really understand it, we have to go back to the time when Moses wrote this sentence. 1,500 years before Jesus, Moses writes this sentence where the dominant worldview of the day was polytheism, the belief in many gods. This idea of one personal God who is holy and set apart and speaks did not exist. Most of you know Moses grew up in Egypt where there were literally hundreds of gods. He was schooled in the best education of Egypt. He would have worshiped the sun god Ra, he would have worshiped the moon and the stars. Hard to believe there was a culture that once existed that believed that the cluster of stars you were born under could affect your life. But that's the way it was. Not only were the sun, moon, and the stars worshiped, frogs were deified as were lice and beasts of the field. This is why in the Exodus story, God just doesn't deliver his people out of Israel. He brings 10 plagues. Every plague on Egypt was a systematic destruction of the gods that they believed in. And when we get there, it's going to be a fascinating study. These so-called gods, as I said, were not personal gods. They were fallible, capricious, and angry. So here's how it worked. The average person lived in fear. Say you were a farmer, and God gave you a bountiful harvest. Well, you would take some of that harvest, and you would put it on an altar to appease the gods. If you had a brilliant harvest the next year, you would give more to the gods because you didn't know if the gods were angry or not. Uh, if your harvest was weak, you would give even more, and so it goes. Later, they offered animals and then human sacrifice, which we all know existed in the ancient world. 
These guys were weirdly attached to Beast of the Field. Think of the fatted calf, or you know, we've seen pictures of a human frame with a with a donkey's head and so forth. And weirdly, they were tied to sexuality, the fertility cults, and temple prostitution. One final thing you need to know, in all of these worldviews at the time Moses wrote, none of the gods would ever interact with man. Man was looked at kind of the lackeys of the gods. They would do things the gods didn't want to do, which really sets up this remarkable story of a God who speaks to his creation and will walk in the time of the evening breezes with Adam. A God who will make clothes when man falls in a garden and will go into a furnace with Daniel's friends. A God that will wrestle with Jacob and change his name to Israel. And of course, we'll find its fulfillment in Jesus who took on flesh and became one of us. And he dwelt among us that he might become our great high priest. It was into this world where life was cheap, short, and miserable, where it had no meaning and purpose, where the dominant theology was like the Lion King, the circle of life. It was a circle of life going around the hub of death. Comes these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word in the beginning is Genesis. That's the name of the book. So in Genesis, we're going to find the origin of all things. Genesis is a beautiful place to begin in your Bible. We always tell people to read John when they become new Christians. But Genesis is a wonderful place because, listen, it answers the big questions of life. The big questions of life pound at us. We try and suppress it, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why am I here? Why am I floating on a ball that's moving through space? How did I get here? Where am I going? Genesis will give us the origin of all things that we see around us. Today we're going to look at the origin of the universe and the earth. We're going to look at the origin of man, both male and female, and their differences. Chapter 2, the origin of marriage. You can study anthropology and world religions. You can search high and low, and there is no understanding outside of the Bible for what we call the genius of marriage. One man for one female being fruitful and multiplied. We see here the origin of language at the Tower of Babel, the origin of nations, particularly Israel, the origin of worship and true sacrifice. The Bible's first prophecy of over a thousand is in Genesis. We'll look at the origin of sin and redemption, and of course, the origin of evil. But the one thing we will not discover in Genesis is the origin of God. The Bible, when it begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, presupposes his existence. In the scripture, God is eternal. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. When someone comes up to you, and maybe they're sincere, and maybe they're not, and they say, well, who made God? There is no answer. No one made God. God already existed. Human beings can only believe two things. Either God created man, which we saw in Genesis 1, 1, or man created God. Now, just for a few minutes, if you believed man created God, there are a lot of problems. First of all, it doesn't answer the big questions of life. If man created God, life is meaningless, and we're all going to live and die, and it really won't matter. Uh, we don't know how all this came to be. There is no beginning. Uh, science talks about the Big Bang, but they don't even know how that started. Evolution supposedly teaches the evolution of the species, but they don't know how it all began. Uh, Richard Dawkins said that the cosmos 
is still looking for its Darwin. And it'll be looking for a long, long time. Uh, another problem, if man created God, uh, we have a little bit of a problem. I'll, I'll give you an idea. Because God, to man, would be an abstract figure. So uh, when we look at superheroes, how many Marvel fans do we have out here? Any Marvel fans? We'll lay hands on you at the end of the service. Hope you convert to DC, because those are the real cool superheroes. Batman, Superman, Aquaman. Yes, Wonder Woman. We didn't leave her out. But all the superheroes, think about it, they're all enhancements of what we know about human beings, right? We just give them super qualities like flying or being invisible or whatever it is. But how did man, if man created God, ever come up with an abstract idea? It would be like adding another primary color or another mute, uh, note to a musical scale. It's virtually impossible. In the Bible, God is mentioned 36 times in Genesis 1 through 2, verse 4. He's mentioned over 5,000 times in the Bible. God, just in Genesis 1, speaks, blesses, sees, makes, calls, sets, divides, and rests. I want to start out by saying God is the main character of Scripture. The Bible and Genesis tell us a lot about God. When Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord? That's what we're going to discover. What does Genesis tell us about God? It tells us three things. Number one, it tells us God creates. In the beginning, bara, Hebrew, God created the heavens and the earth. We call this the doctrine of creation. Uh, one of the things you're going to find in Genesis is the study of first things, the study of doctrine. The word doctrine, don't let it scare you. It just means teaching. Jesus told the disciples, go into all the world, teaching them to believe all the things I've commanded you. Many people today are settling for a doctrinalist, a doctrineless Christianity. But doctrine is very important, and it begins here in Genesis. Martin Luther said this is the bulwark, the foundation of all that we believe. Augustine has three commentaries on Genesis alone. So the doctrine of creation tells us a lot. Uh, you guys have heard me talk about this before, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I've been enamored with this for two years now. 109 words that explain everything we believe as Christians, Old and New Testament. John MacArthur said all Christians uh, believe in more than the Apostles' Creed. No one can believe in anything less. It's brilliant when you study it. Out of the 109 words, they devoted 12 words, over 10%, to the first three verses. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Now, let's look at that for a minute. I believe in God. It's not some esoteric, therapeutic, uh, higher power. I believe in God. He's the Father Almighty. Very important. The creator of heaven and earth. Where did they come up with that? James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from who? The Father of lights, where there is no shadow or variance of turning. Deuteronomy 32.6, he's the Father of Israel. And then, of course, David in Psalm 68.5 said, God is the Father to the fatherless. The Father of Israel. And, of course, Jesus said, when asked, how do we pray? We look into the heavens and we say, our Father who art in heaven. God is personal. He's masculine. Now, God is neither 
male or female, he is spirit. But for, for our vantage point, God is masculine. That is important because it matters. If I had one wish that I could have filled, it wouldn't be to take drugs or alcohol or illicit sex out of the culture. If I had one wish, if I could wave my hand, I would put a father in every home. We're going to see in Genesis 2 when God begins to build one man, one woman, raising children, be fruitful. That would be my wish. Every child would look up and see a mom and dad. I know it's not possible in our world. Our world has fallen. But that was God's wish. Now, I want to show you something intricate. Look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Father God. But notice what it says here um, in the next verse. The earth was without form, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God now is hovering over this chaos. It's the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament comes to fruition in the New Testament when descends on Jesus at his baptism like a dove, breathes into the early church, and then notice verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God creates by speaking, and words are powerful, and what do we find in John 1.1? No genealogy, but we find in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was what? Was God. Jesus, the agent of creation. And so what we have here in Genesis 1, 1 to 3, is a hint of a trinity. In 126, when God creates man, he says, let us create man in our image. When Adam and Eve sinned in chapter 3, he said, the man has become like us to know good and evil. This is vital because it answers one of the big questions in life. Why did God create us? Why is there nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, some people fantasize that God created us because he was lonely or bored. He needed people to boss around. None of that's true. We kind of get a glimpse in John 17 in Jesus' prayer where he's praying for all those who will come to believe. And he said, Father, I pray for them that they might be one in us. And he goes through that whole thing about this wonderful union of what we call the Godhead or the Trinity. This wonderful relationship of peace and joy and love in unceasing delight. Ephesians said we were made for God's good pleasure. Here's what I believe. The God of the universe dwelling in unceasing joy, love, peace, and community desired to invite his creation in. He invited his creation, his human beings, into the joys of community. The doctrine of creation tells us that the God who created us longs to be with us. That is the heart of the Old Testament. That is the heart of the Scripture. That is the heart of God. And the way we see this is God is set apart from creation. All the creation myths, all the other gods, they're intertwined with creation. The book of Romans says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that man is without excuse because all they, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but because futile in their thoughts and foolishness in their hearts, their minds were darkened, and professing to be wise, they became fools, and they turned the glory of God into corruptible things like beasts and birds and fowls of the air. David said, the heavens declare 
the glory of God, the earth is his handiwork. Day by day, it others for his speech. There are several Bibles, I might be stoned for saying this, the first one is creation. Every day creation speaks. This is why we long to be outside and go to zoos and go whale watching and we love to go to the national parks because there's something about this creation that tells us about the glory of God. To believe that God is not the designer of this world, you would have to have sevens come up in a slot machine from here to California. Perfect distance from the sun for heating and cooling and the moon for tides. I mean, we could go on and on, and we've talked about all this stuff. Even Richard Dawkins, an avowed atheist, said when you stand at, the ground, stand at the Grand Canyon, there is something in you that wants to worship. Because the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The earth is his handiwork. And yet God stays apart from creation. God creates ex nihilo, that's Latin for out of nothing. Verse three, God says, let there be light, and it was. Verse six, God creates a firmament, it was. Verse nine, God says, let the waters be separated from waters, and it was. God sets himself apart because no one can create anything out of nothing. No one. Now, I don't know if you know this, as, as the height of God's creation, God gave you a little bit of that. You all know that? You have like a point oh 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 one taste of what it's like in your body. You want your hand to move, it moves. You want your mouth to speak, it moves. You can walk, you can think. Your body is a small microcosm of what God does when he speaks in the creation. Now, we can't prove God created the earth. We can't even prove God exists. Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand. Doesn't mean we know or we have all the facts. It means by faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so that everything we see was created by those things that were invisible. Atoms and molecules. Now, this is important. We don't know by faith we understand. This is why we don't know and this is why science doesn't know. No one was there. If the earth is four billion years old, where's the four billion year old man who's gonna tell us how it all happened? Now, I believe the angels were there. Job said when God created the world, the angels, the morning stars, cheered and clapped their hands. They kind of threw up a 10 every time God created something, the Grand Canyon or the Black Forest in Germany. God, you're amazing. But no one was there. Uh, the counter argument is that this is all natural. It's all um, part of nature. By the way, there is no Hebrew word for nature because there's nothing natural about it. God is the creator of all things. And God wants us to know this so there is redundancy and there's things that are repeated over and over again. Uh, if you can look in your Bibles or remember the scriptures that we read, uh, one of the things that gets repeated almost in redundancy, almost like the author wants us to remember is this idea of a day. Did you notice that? It'll tell us uh, the first day came, here's what happened, then here's the redundancy, evening and morning happened, and that was the first day, and then it just keeps going on and on and on. It's almost like the writer wants to know, wants us to know this really happened in six historical days. Now, the counter-argument is evolution. This is what kids are taught in school, not as a theory, but fact now. 
uh, that this was epics of time that took millions and millions of years. Now, I want to do something real simple for you because uh, this will really speak to you. In your browser, if you type in the word evolution, what comes on the screen, the first thing you'll see is a picture of a wolf or some kind of hybrid hyena with eight or nine intermediary species that finally becomes the whale as we know it today. And the site will tell you that it took 65 million years. Now, I've lived all my life by the common sense. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, so I try and live by common sense. So my first question is, why are there still wolves? Didn't the first wolf drown, second wolf, third wolf? Uh, I love whale watching. And when I go whale watching, the, the girl that guides you through it always tells you that whales eat like a tons of food a day. Where did all that food come from? How did that evolve? Why was it already there? Again, you need sevens across the slot machine from here to California. Christians come along and they say, God used evolution. You know who really rebels against that? The evolutionists. Because they say evolution is a mindless and guideless process. That natural selection is just the survival of the fittest. That there is no design. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, writes a chapter on bats that blows my mind. When he talks about how they fly at night and the sonar God put in them, I mean, no one could break it down in detail like he does. And at the end, in the last paragraph, he said, this all looks like design, but it's not. Christians come up with this idea of theistic evolution that God created over time, and then I love this thing, because the rabbis tell us that Genesis 1 was a poem. But the rabbis in Jesus' day were mainly wrong, and they still haven't produced the rabbis that say this, and most of them are liberal, and they don't believe in the word of God. Here's my point. Genesis begins by saying there is the grandeur of creation that if we believe what it's speaking to us, we can see the attributes of God. But it can only take us so far. So what do we need? We need God's word. Because the bee that pollinates my food can sting me and the waves that are beautiful to look at and frolic in can drown me. So nature is not enough. So God has given us his eternal word. God wants us to know we can trust it in the literal, historical, grammatical way that it was written. And here's the simple truth, folks. When you don't believe God's word, you have to believe everything else. So if you don't believe God created it the way he said in six days, now there's 10 views of creation. And if you don't believe God created the male and female, I think there's up to 60 genders now. You see where we're going? I've always said, if you can believe in the beginning God, you can believe everything else. Because if this is allegorical, and if this is theistic evolution, what are you going to do when the sun stands still, or the Red Sea parts, or a man gets up on Sunday morning from the dead? God is setting up that his word can be trusted. Now, there's something else I hope you saw that gets repeated here. Every day, God looks at what he's created, and he says it's what? Good. You know what that tells me? God is good. 
Told you I wasn't the smartest person in the room. God is good. We never thought we'd see that in the Old Testament. How many people believe or don't even follow God because he thinks they're angry? He thinks, they think he's like the gods that we talked about before. God in his goodness created abundance and variety for his creation. He knows that we're spirit, soul, and body, and he gave us a wonderful world to live in, didn't he? Teeming with fish and life and things. It's incredible. Think about this. Why in the world, here's common sense, why in the world would a lobster, the ugliest thing you've ever seen in the sea, taste so good? Use your common sense. I was at Longwood Gardens recently. I love grapefruits. Anything grapefruit's in, seltzer, soda, whatever grapefruit's in, I buy it. I even buy grapefruit candles. And uh, I'm out at Longwood Gardens one day. I've never seen a grapefruit tree. I've seen orange trees. And they had a grapefruit tree there. And I got to tell you, it looked like a tree where somebody took tape and taped grapefruits to it. I mean, for someone who's never seen it, and Adam was probably this way, it almost looks fake. And we go on and on in the wonders of creation and the things you and I enjoy. The Bible says we were made lower than the angels. Now, one day we'll be higher than them. Right now, we're a little lower. You know, we can't, like, be beamed up or move around like they can. One day, I think we will. But we're also higher than the animals. Notice the separation here. Uh, I was at the zoo one time in Texas with my daughter, and they have one of the best orangutan exhibits I've ever seen. And these orangutans, I got to tell you, they were playing with their kids, and they were jumping around. And, you know, there was a sign there that said, don't feed the animals, but I was eating Cheez-Its. And I threw a couple down. And this orangutan went over, scooped it up, and ate it, and then he went like this to me. And my daughter looks at me, she goes, look, Dad, I don't believe in evolution. And I believe the Bible, and I know what you believe, but man, they sure look like us. And she said, I read somewhere that 99% of their DNA is just like us. And I said, yeah, but here's the problem. The other 1% is Shakespeare and Beethoven and Steve Jobs and you and I thinking about salmon for lunch instead of Cheez-Its and what we can find on the ground. We're lower than the angels, but we're the height of God's creation. In verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And when God makes man, what is it? Very good. No longer is it good, it's very good. As you study the Old Testament, as you look at the doctrine of creation, uh, you might be surprised to find out there's somewhat more of creation in the book of Job than there is in Genesis. You all know that Job, through his suffering, got mad at God. He had all these questions, and one day God answered him. Uh, for those of you who say God never speaks to you, be careful. You may have a Job experience. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. He said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'm going to question you and you tell me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job wasn't there. Neither was Richard Dawkins or anyone else. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you have understanding? Can you measure the earth? Surely you know. Did you draw a line upon it or lay its cornerstone? 
Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of doves? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mantle? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings? And God goes on and on and on. And finally, Job taps out and he says, God, that's enough. Behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice. And I will add nothing more. Isaiah said, is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. To whom then will we compare him? And what would he be like, says the Holy One? Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of of the earth. And you know what blows me away about God? He's intimately involved. You read the book of Job and you see God is involved with animals where no one exists. Prompted G.K. Chesterton to say, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that God makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. God is good. He put man in a garden. He gave us abundance and variety. And I know it's hard. There's suffering, there's war, there's violence. We'll look at that next week. If you're on this long and you doubt God is good, read these chapters. There is a God who cares about you. He's exalted you. You are the apple of his eye. Think about this. The wonder of creation. Two sparrows can't fall to the ground. Two sparrows. We're not talking orangutans or whales. Two sparrows sold insignificantly in a Martin place. And you have more value than they. Jesus said, if God so feeds them, think about that. God feeds them. He didn't put it on autopilot. How much more will he care about you and about me? We are the Imago Dei made in the image of God. A few other things about human beings. Not only are we made in God's image, we were designed to partner with God. This is where we get the doctrine of work. Now, a lot of people are going to say, oh, you know, Adam had to work by the sweat of his brow when weeds came. Well, you know, there may not have been weeds, but God left a lot of creation undone. Did you ever notice that? Adam had to name all the animals. He had to tend to the garden. There is something in human beings where we have a desire to contribute, a desire to create. Notice also that when God speaks the world into existence, he doesn't speak man into existence. In chapter 2, he makes man from the dust of the earth. When Eve's created, she takes it out of the rib. What God's showing there is that once again, man is not God. And that this flesh is fearful and wonderful it's made. Without the breath of God, there's no life. God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. God made them male and female. One of the things I appreciate about God in his goodness 
is God looks at a perfect creation and he says, something's not good. This before sin. That man would not be alone. And I often think, what's it like to be the first man? What's it like to be Adam looking at grapefruit trees and all this beauty and, and, and he's naming all the animals, right? And, and he's looking at everything and, and, and we like animals, right? I like zoos. I go whale watching. We all have dogs. It's wonderful. But, but all of a sudden, Adam realized, wait a second. They all have each other in some weird way. Something's wrong here. And there was kind of a, an emptiness even before the fall in Adam. And God said, that's not good, so I will create, listen, a helper comparable to him, a co-responder, somebody that he can relate to, something beyond an orangutan. They can talk about things. They can share things. And God puts Adam in a sleep. When he wakes up, he says, he's looking at Eve. Imagine seeing her the first time. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Wow, a lot of the same structure. A few things have changed. And he says, whoa, man, she has a womb. And there was intimacy and the mingling of souls and the oneness that Jesus prayed about would now be man living in community. And marriage is created, the building block of society. Long before there's a temple and any worship, Long before there's a government and any economic system, the first thing that God gives to man is the family. One man for one woman, bearing children, living in the fear of God. You want to destroy a society, destroy the family. It's that simple. And God, in his genius, lays this beautiful foundation in the book of Genesis. God creates... God is good. Can I tell you the last thing and we're done? God is love. Now, what's amazing is that phrase is not in the Old Testament. It's in 1 John. It's a definition of God. God is love. It doesn't mean God is loving. It means it's the essence of who he is. He never acts not out of love. The problem with love is we have like this therapeutic, deistic look of what love looks like and feels like in our minds. The word love does not appear in Genesis 1 and 2. It's very strange. Think about it. Uh, God creates this world, but love isn't mentioned. Man's created. Love's not mentioned. There's a marriage, and love's not mentioned. You can do your homework. You can find the first time love is mentioned in Genesis. Let me give you a hint. It's going to take you a long time, but it's there. And when you get there, it will be the truest picture of love we've ever seen. But can I tell you what love is? This is what love is at its core, and parents will understand this. When you love a child, which might be the highest love there is, you want that child to flourish. Everything a parent does or should do is that that child would flourish in life. Now, we don't give them everything they want. We put boundaries and borders like God did, and we can't get into all that. But at its core, the object of love, your spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whatever you love, your desire is that it would flourish. And we know God is love through the doctrine of creation because God's idea for the mankind was that we would flourish. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. 
And that's more than sex. It's more than marriage. There were gifts God wanted to bring out of Adam and the human race. And we'll never know what this world would have looked like. People come to me all the time and say, you know, you know why the Bible's not true? Because if man never died, where were all the people going to go? And, you know, outsmarting God, it must be really tiring, you know? So the first thing I say is, well, you can fact check me on this, but I think you could put the whole world in Rhode Island if we stood, we couldn't social distance, but if we stood, you know, next to each other, I think you'd put the whole world in Rhode Island. Not only that, how, do you, how does anybody know we were going to stay on earth? See, we don't know what God's plan was. God's plan was infinite, was profound, but I know this, it was that human beings would flourish. That our creative genius would abound as we partner with God. We're going to find out next week in Genesis 3 where we go awry is when we want to do our thing without God. And we're going to see the mess it's led to. But I want to leave Genesis 1, 2, verse 4. I want to leave you with this. God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. God is good and God loves you so much. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3, he said, good teacher, no one can do the miracles you're doing unless God be with him. You know what Jesus' response was? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. The reason we're studying the Old Testament, this is the Bible Jesus and the apostles and Paul read. These were Jesus' bedtime stories. When Jesus was 12 years old, he told his mother and father, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Jesus' relationship with the father was grounded in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when Jesus told Nicodemus only God was good, he was saying two things. Number one, God is good. And he was asking Nicodemus in some weird way, are you saying that I am God? Because we are one in the same. Father, we thank you for creation. But we thank you, Lord, that this creation one day is going to disappear. As much as we love this world, Lord, and we should be great stewards of it, one day you're going to wreak havoc on it, Lord. We see it in the book of Genesis. The curse will be destroyed, as will this earth. It will all burn, and then you will recreate something new, something special. God, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, we've been wonderfully remade and reborn. Lord, we who were dead spiritually are now alive. We can worship, we can think, we can feel. Your word is alive, it speaks to us. God, as we travel the Old Testament, let us bring us to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. To him we give all the glory. And God, whatever we see this week, you're the creator, you're good, and you love us more than we can ever imagine. God, we trust your word to lead us and guide us in a very troubled world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We'll sing one last song.